everyone. This is Mark Mavsessian, the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's. I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Professor Mark DiGirolami, who's the center's other co-director, for an episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org. That's one word. Or you can also find it on many streaming platforms, such as Apple iTunes, uh, and Spotify and many other platforms as well. Uh, Mark, welcome back. It's been a productive summer, I think. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And I'm, I'm especially looking forward to this session. We're going to do something a little bit different this time. You know, normally we're either looking at Supreme Court cases or looking at legal developments. But this time we, we turn inward. We turn <laughs> some, uh, inward uh, to, to our own to our own scholarship. You know, we haven't really done this before, but of course, you and I, in addition to being observers of the law and religion scene, we're also uh, occasional scholars, writers uh, uh, about various issues. And, uh, and in, in this session and, and the next session, what we thought that we'd do is to, is to tell our listeners a little bit about some of the scholarship that we're doing. So in, in this session, uh, I'm going to do a little interview of, of Mark. We're going to talk about one of his very interesting new papers. Uh, and, and then in the following session, he's going to return the favor for me. So, so the paper that we're talking about actually this time is Mark's very interesting new article called, and this is a great title, may I, may I add, The New Thoreaus, The New Thoreaus, as in Henry David Thoreau. So Mark, this paper, I think, kind of picks up on work that you've done in the past on on the phenomenon of what is known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and sort of develops that work in, in new directions. Um, so maybe you could sort of explain, start, start us off by explaining to readers what the nuns are and what challenges they bring to the study of law and religion. Yes, well, well, thank you. First, I'd like to say thank you to the center for having me on. It's really a great, it's a great honor uh, to do this. We've had so many guests before, and to be one of them is really something I had never expected. But uh, thank you, thank you very much. No, I think this will be a lot of fun to do, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, you're right, Mark. Uh, my paper, which I call the New Thoreaus, for for reasons we're going to talk about, and, and I should say this is going to appear in a forthcoming issue, a, a symposium issue of the Loyola University Chicago um, Law Review. I'm looking forward to that. Um, this paper talks about uh, a phenomenon in American religion, uh, which many people call the rise of the nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S. It's nuns, not, not nuns like in the, in the Catholic Church religious order. And nuns is a catch-all term for people that say they don't have a religious affiliation. So, you know, on surveys like the General Social Survey or one of the various Pew Research Center surveys that's done periodically, surveyors will ask a question. Uh, surveyors will ask a question, uh, what is your religious identity or religious affiliation? And people, what Christian, Jewish, whatever. And then there's a category, none, none of the above or, or none. And that's who the nuns are. Now, I take it, Mark, this doesn't mean or doesn't necessarily mean atheist or agnostic, right? Is some some other kind of category or does it include atheists and agnostics? How would you describe it? Correct. That's a very good question. Now, there's some confusion because people use the word somewhat differently. But but basically speaking, the nuns means strict nuns means just generally people who lack a religious affiliation, people who say they're not identified. That's like 30% of Americans today, which is a huge huge number, a huge increase over the last two generations or so since the 1990s. Just to give you an idea, 
1972, the year of the first general social survey, only like four or five percent of Americans said they didn't have a religious identity. Now it's like 30. Okay, but you ask a good question. Within that 30 percent, the large majority are not atheists or agnostics. Atheists or agnostics make up like together like 9% of the American people. And that's a number that has stayed mostly steady. 20% of Americans, the largest percentage of the nuns, 20% of Americans are the unaffiliated believers. These are people who are not atheists. They're not even agnostics. They believe in spirituality. They have some sense of transcendence, but they reject religious institutions. They're not part of any official religious body. And that's, as I say, now like 20% of Americans, about a fifth of us, which would come to, by my calculation, about 20, about 66 million people. Sorry, 66 million people. Yeah, huge number. And and it's actually, it's interesting that you mentioned 1972, which in addition to being the year of my uh, birth, uh, was also uh, the year of a very famous case that I think kind of uh, kicks off your reflections in this new piece, right? So you've done some work on the nuns before, quite independent of this piece. But in this piece, you really frame things by starting with uh, this famous case, Wisconsin versus Yoder. Uh, and it's it's Yoder's 50th anniversary this year. I, I won't I won't uh, tell readers what how, how old that makes me. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe you could uh, tell readers a little a bit about how this case Theme, what it was about and how it sort of informs your thinking about the issue of the nuns. Well, I, I think, Mark, the careful listeners are going to figure out how old you are, <laughs> uh, but I, which I wish I was, I should say. But I also, I, I, I hadn't realized what an inflection point in history 1972 was. So many things going on. Year. In Vintage year. <laughs> Important year. Yeah. Okay. You're quite right. This is, this is the 50th anniversary of Wisconsin versus Yoder. And when I started this paper, actually, it was meant to be a comment on Wisconsin versus Yoder on its 50th year. Um, and then it kind of morphed into this other topic, which, as you say, I have addressed before, like about 10 years ago, 10 or eight or 10 years ago. So Wisconsin versus Yoder, 1972, a very famous Supreme Court opinion uh, in which the court held that the state of Wisconsin violated the free exercise clause when it required the Amish to send their children to school past the eighth grade. And, and the court applied a test known as strict scrutiny and said that, um, that Wisconsin didn't have a compelling reason for requiring the Amish to send uh, their kids to school. Okay, in the course of that opinion, of course, one of the elements, one of the questions was, is, are the Amish a religion? Is this a violation of their religious freedom to make them go to school? And that really wasn't contested in the case. Nobody said the Amish were not a religion. But the court said in dicta that the Amish definitely qualify as a religion. There's a long discussion of this, quite, quite a long discussion, actually, given the fact that no one raised this, this issue. And the court said in dicta that the Amish qualified as a religion, among other reasons, because of their communal character. The Amish were an organized religious community with a, with a strict set of of doctrines and rules, a long tradition going back for hundreds of years, the court said the Amish clearly qualify as a religion. Okay. As I say, not really necessary to resolve the case, but that's what the court said. Got it. And and along the way, uh, and we're going to come back to this issue about communal, the communal character of uh, of religion, but along the way, the court discusses, and this is this is sort of where the the new Thoreau's uh, title, your your title, comes in. Talks about the figure of Henry David 
Thoreau does the Yoder Court as a sort of example of an individual spiritual seeker who who wasn't religious and who could therefore not avail himself, by contrast with the Amish, of uh, the protections of the religion clauses. So your paper talks a little bit about Thoreau and what he believed, and 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 maybe you could sort of summarize that a little bit for readers and how that sort of connects with some of the themes of your paper, which we're going to talk about next. Yes, you're right, Mark. The, the Yoder court famously distinguished Thoreau in this long, in this long dicta on, uh, on why the Amish qualified as a religion. The court gave a counterexample and said, you know, Henry David Thoreau was just an individual spirit. They didn't say, I'm not sure they said spiritual. They said an individual seeker, a philosopher who, you know, went off into the woods to find his own way he would not be a religion. He could not avail himself of the free exercise clause, the court said, in distinction to, in contrast with the Amish, who were not individual philosophers, but part of a longstanding religious community. And this is a very famous piece of dicta. I mean, all of us who study law and religion know this idea, Thoreau is not a religion, the Amish are. Um, the court seemed to think that Thoreau was secular, but you know, and I did some research on Henry David Thoreau over the summer. It was a, a lot of fun, I have to say, going to read a Henry David Thoreau for the first time since college, really. Um, it's not true that he was secular. It, it's not at all true that he was secular. He was a transcendentalist, and he was deeply spiritual. When you read his writings like Walden or A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, he, he was definitely spiritual. He drew from many different sources, uh, Christian, Hindu, Zoroastrian. Um, and he rejected institutional religion. He was very negative, particularly about institutional Christianity. He was very negative about that. He prized authenticity, you know, individual personal authenticity. But it's wrong to say he wasn't spiritual. In fact, I think Thoreau is kind of an early version of a very common phenomenon now. He was spiritual, but not religious. Good. So, so this is what's connecting then uh, when you say the new Thoreau's, and we're going to get to your claims about what it is that, how it is that Yoder distinguished it. But when you're talking about the new Thoreau's, you're really talking, at least in some sense, about a kind of precursor to the nuns, um, or maybe perhaps a, a subset of the nuns. Uh, or I wondered, is this some, a, sort of a phenomenon about something larger, something about how the, the, the way that we have been trained or conditioned uh, by the court, albeit not by not by Yoder so much, but perhaps by subsequent decisions to think about religion, right? So we're maybe we're all the new Thoreaus in, in some ways. How, how do you think about this kind of question? Well, I, I'd say to start, there, there are a lot more Thoreaus than there used to be. You know, um, I think Thoreau is definitely, he's been a highly influential figure in American religion in his stress on individual spirituality and personal authenticity. And so I think he's very much a precursor of this big subset of the nuns, the, the, you know, what I call the unaffiliated believers. He's definitely a precursor of, of them um, because like him, these new unaffiliated believers also are spiritual and they also insist on following their own paths and they insist on being able to draw from different sources and not, not being cabined by any one particular tradition. So so you might say what we've seen is that that Thoreau has gone mainstream. You know, I mean, Thoreau in his day was he was an eccentric. Everyone thought he was even his friends thought he was eccentric. Emerson thought Thoreau was deeply eccentric. And conceivably, Mark, even as of 1972. Right. Um, the, the, if, if what you say is right, then 
than in this early survey, right? We've, we've just seen it uh, since in the last 50 years, the mainstreaming of Thoreau. Excellent. Absolutely, Mark. I think, you know, in the last 50 years, there has been a big change in which these ideas of, of kind of personal, expressive, spiritual authenticity have become a mass movement. Now, you ask a great question. Why has that happened? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, something has happened in American life since the 1970s, and particularly since the 1990s that has done this. Uh, people think maybe it's demographics. Maybe it's the fact of religious intermarriage. There's a lot of that in America now. Maybe it's political. Uh, many of the nuns really resist sort of traditional views about sexuality, which traditional religions continue to teach many of them. Um, so I think that's right. I think the, the internet, some people point to the internet and say now it's now it's possible to curate one's own spirituality from a number of different sources. I mean, you know, Henry David Thoreau, it was difficult in the 1800s to find translations of Hindu works and Zoroastrian works. Now you can just go online in a matter of minutes you can find this. So, so there are a lot of reasons, um, but for sure this has now become a mainstream phenomenon. Very interesting. Oh, may I, may I ask one, one other thing? I want to point out that, sure. uh, you know, later this fall, we're going to hear from Tara Burton at our Reading Society. She's written a really excellent book called Strange Rites, in which she talks about the nuns, but she raises even another phenomenon, which is people who are affiliated with a religion, who retain their formal religious affiliations, but feel free to ignore some teachings and to adopt teachings of other religions as well. So she talks about a Presbyterian minister who is also a practicing Buddhist, this kind of thing. So, so when you include the kind of unaffiliated believers and the what she calls the religious hybrids, uh, you make it to much more than 20% of the American population at this point. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and wow, we're looking forward to, to speaking with her. And, you know, Mark, it occurs to me that, that this is part of the phenomenon, perhaps broader phenomenon of institutional breakdown uh, that, that we've been thinking about uh, for, for a variety of other projects. But I've got a, a different question to ask you. So um, so your, your paper talks about this, of course, but it also says that this is going to be or this is creating a problem and particularly a problem for law. Um, and it, and it uh, um, introduces that problem by reflecting on the special urgency of the rise of the new Thoreaus with respect to the issue of the legal contests over vaccine mandates and exemption cases arising out of the COVID crisis. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that sort of factual setup as showing why this is creating sort of pressures for, for law that, that are going to be, you know, a challenge. Yeah, well, I think, you know, so so what we've discussed so far about the rise of the nuns is interesting as a cultural movement, but, you know, you and I are both law professors, and so we talk mostly about legal matters. And in my paper, I argue that the rise of the nuns is going to start putting pressure on free exercise jurisprudence, because as the number of nuns in society increases, it seems to me likely that more and more of them are going to begin challenging certain rules and laws on the basis of their religious beliefs. That is, they are going to start saying they, they want an accommodation from a, from a rule because their beliefs do not allow them to comply in some way. And I talk in the paper about some different contexts, but the one I spend most time on is recent vaccine mandate challenges um, with respect to COVID-19, but I've also discovered a few with respect to influenza vaccines. Um, there are also some cases involving masking requirements, which I think are similar um, similar conceptually. 
And in these cases, a number of plaintiffs have claimed religious exemptions from these public health requirements, um, even though the plaintiffs are not orthodox members of traditional communal religions, which is, okay, that's a new thing, right? Now we're seeing these nuns begin to influence the, the cases as, or appear in the cases as well. Now I should say, and you know this, Mark, and I'm sure many of our listeners do too, most courts have held um, that these claims should qualify because the basic presumption in American law today is to receive a religious exemption, to be counted as a religion for purposes of our law, you don't have to be an orthodox member of a traditional communal religion. You can have your own idiosyncratic view and the courts will treat that as a religion. Um, but I think the nuns are starting to put some pressure on that idea. And I identified in the, in the paper a few cases in which recently some federal courts have said, um, have said no, this is, this is in fact, it's not enough to just claim your own idiosyncratic religious belief. You have to show at least some connection with some organized religious body. Yeah, and this is interesting because usually the grounds on which these cases can get knocked out, for example, is either A, on lack of sincerity, for example, something like that, or B, there's just some overriding uh, interest that even though they do count as a religion and they do have sincere beliefs, then, you know, and, and this this might be the case in the COVID crisis or, or, or for other sorts of emergency issues, some government interest is so compelling that it just kind of overrides. It's more important uh, than the than than the claim being made. But here, what you're really talking about is saying, no, you're sincere. Uh, we 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 say that you're sincere, but you still don't count as a religion. And so you're you're saying that you're starting to see lower court uh, decisions finding uh, 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 holding these kinds of um, uh, uh, making these kinds of holdings. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right, Mark. I, I discuss a few of them in the paper. I can just talk about one now. There's one from the, a district court, federal district court in Pennsylvania, in which um, the plaintiffs were challenging not a vaccine requirement, but a masking requirement. Uh, the local school district was requiring children to mask for public school, and a few parents said no. And um, in the case I'm thinking of, it's a case called Gearlings out of the, as I say, federal district court in Pennsylvania, Two of the plaintiffs were Christians who uh, claimed that, uh, in their view, Christianity prevented them from wearing masks, and they actually left their churches when their churches started requiring masks. Another plaintiff said that he didn't go to church, he was spiritual, not religious, but he did believe in Jesus Christ, and he said that masks were against his religious views because they were a mockery of the Creator. And then there was a final plaintiff who said, I'm not a member of any church. I don't believe in any religious scripture, but I just think there's something else out there. And on the basis of that belief, I don't want my child to wear a mask because something else out there has assured me that these masks cause harmful effects. Now, I guess we'd say conventionally, most courts would say, okay, well, these are religious. We're not going to question that. And they'll, we'll move on and decide the case on other grounds, as you say, compelling interests or something like that. But in this case, the district court said, this, these are just not religious claims because they are, they're entirely solipsistic. That's the word I'm using. It's not the word the court used. But they were, they were too individual, too personal, too disconnected from any comprehensive set of beliefs and practices. And the court said these were admirable beliefs. The court wasn't denigrating them, but the court simply said, these are not religious for legal purposes. And, and 
So, and this really, you know, we're sort of coming at the thesis of the paper sort of at, at the end, but, but I think it makes sense in, in some way because your view is that, and the thesis of the paper is that these courts are really either explicitly or otherwise adopting the dicta in Yoder, the dicta that you say never has really been truly abandoned by the court, that it's groupishness or the group quality of religion that makes it such, or or that is that is at least an extremely important component for uh, what ought to be legally recognized religion. I think that's right, isn't it, Mark? That is correct. You're right. Now, so so the Yoder dicta is 50 years ago. Um, court has never overruled it. I mean, how could you overrule dicta, right? As you say, the court has never departed from it. Disavowed. Ha- Sorry. Has never disavowed it. Right. The court has never disavowed it. There are a couple of later cases, uh, our listeners, some of our listeners will know them, Thomas and Frizee, in which the court indicated that idiosyncratic beliefs can, can, be, can be religious for these purposes. Now, I, I did a close read of those cases, and I think those cases, although they talk about idiosyncratic beliefs, actually, in both of those cases, the beliefs in question were, were sort of, you know, how do I put this? We're within the ballpark of, of the religions that the, the claimants were claiming to follow. So in one case, there was an intrafaith dispute among the Jehovah's Witnesses about whether it was permissible to work on weapons. There were some who believed yes and some who believed no. Well, that's not really entirely idiosyncratic then. That's, there's a difference of opinion within the, the group. And the other one involved someone who said he was a Christian and didn't want to work on Sunday even though he never went to church. And the court said, well, okay, it's not bizarre to think a Christian doesn't want to work on Sunday. So, so um, I think that, that the Yoder dicta, it's kind of still out there. The court has never disavowed it. And you're exactly right to get back to your question. These courts are relying on that idea that really you have to show some connection with the community for it to be religious in character. Right. Now, and now, of course, even in Thomas, if memory serves, they said in their own dicta, the court said in, in its own dicta there that, um, you know, that it, it's that uh, truly, truly idiosyncratic uh, uh, beliefs and, and so on. Well, that might be bizarre, a bizarre. bizarre or something like that. But but even if, if again, if memory serves um, that individuals, right, individual, that the sort of locus of, of belief should be in the individual or that we, that it certainly is not, it's not, not religious simply because only one person believes it. Is that, is that right? They did, absolutely. They did say that. But, but as I say, that in the context of those cases, these were not simply individual and, um, and Yoder, the dicta is still out there and some courts are following it. Now, you know, I, I wouldn't say, and I make this point in the paper uh, for myself, I wouldn't say that that you can't be religious unless you're an Orthodox member of a traditional community. No, I mean, I think to say that would would slight a long American tradition of honoring individual religious conscience and, you know, some of the cases that we've talked about. But I do think, and here I want to tip my hat to you, Mark, I, I, I rely on some work you've done before about substantial burden and also on Professor Kent Greenewald from Columbia, who famously has said that for legal purposes, religion has to be defined analogically. And you have to look to many different factors that make up what are conventionally thought to be religions, right? I, I would say that that among those factors, uh, the the existence of a religious community to which the claimant can tie himself or herself is really a very important factor. That would be my position. Got it. So right. So that that's 
and that is that it's it's a it's an important criteria, but it's not it's you wouldn't say that it is essential. Uh, in other words, it's not a um, it's not a necessary right component. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be you know I'm a little faint hearted. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but I would say it's got to be a very it's I'd say crucial factor, very important factor, something like that. Just out of curiosity, do are there other factors that you could list that suppose somebody were doing this sort of analogical view, you know, are there two or three others that you could sort of suggest to our listeners would also be relevant factors, even if not as crucial, you know, something to consider if somebody didn't have the groupishness or the commonality uh, component? Now, it's funny you mention that because the editors at the Loyola University of Chicago, a lot of you have asked me that same question about like, when I, on my next draft, can I address this? Well, sure. You know, I'm sure, you know, Kent Greenwald's test as well as I do, but it's, you know, the, the, the belief in a transcendence is another factor. Uh, the existence of a set of doctrines is another factor. And I mean, all of these things go into what we think of as a religion. And look, it's going to be a judgment call. Uh, I mean, I, my, my test is open to the criticism that it's not categorical and black and white. I don't think that would bother you so much, Mark, given your scholarship. But uh, I understand that. But I just don't think you can get around that. I, I think there's no escaping judgment in these sorts of questions. I think... Um, uh, I wouldn't want to say categorically no to the idiosyncratic believer, but I also think the farther you are from a body of religious uh, community or the body of religious understanding or, that, or, or a religious community, let's say it that way, the harder it is to claim that you are exercising a religion. And so, for example, in Geerling's, right, someone who says, you know, um, I don't, I just believe there's something out there. And that something out there has, you know, has given me the conviction that masks are bad or, you know, I, I am a Christian and um, I believe masks are a dishonor or dishonoring the creator. Well, I don't know. There's there's nothing in Christianity like that, really. And and certainly there's nothing in it like, you know, there's something out there that's telling you to do something so. To me, those are those are much weaker claims for a religious uh, accommodation. Yeah, one one quick thought I had uh, be- before we wrap up is just to observe that the kind of thing that you're discussing, and perhaps even that you're suggesting that the Thomas Court did, is to get itself a little bit involved in what the relevant uh, beliefs of the group look like in order to determine whether we were dealing with something that was. Uh, individual versus idiosyncratic, something like that, 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 you know, that if there was, you had even mentioned earlier when we were talking, if there's internal disagreement or something like that, um, well, then at least you can find a place within the system of group beliefs uh, within which the individual belief sort of fits or, or, or opposes other beliefs. But it's something that sort of has no connection at all, uh, that you can't find any connection to the group's belief or to the group's uh, system of, you know, of, of traditional thought and so on, then that's going to be a little bit more difficult. Okay. Well, anyways, right. it's going to well, be could very- I, Could I just add, could I just well, add just before we get, we get to that? Uh, I want to say you're quite right. And I want to, you know, reassure listeners that I'm not, I understand people get nervous when courts start to encourage, interrogate religious teaching, but, but for these purposes, a court wouldn't be saying who's right and who's wrong. It would just be as an empirical matter, what does the religion teach? And Sure, that might be tough to find, too, in some circumstances, but it seems to me that this is at least a relevant factor. And also, I would say, you know, in 1972, that wonderful year, 
you could you could dismiss this. This is a peripheral thing. They're just only five percent of Americans claim not to claim no religious identity. Um, this just isn't going to come up very often. Why, why are we and and people who talk about the definition of religion question generally often say it's not worth getting into because it's just not a problem. We don't really have this. It's not a practical problem to think about. But I think it might become one. That's that's one of the takeaways from my paper is that this might become a practical problem now, given the fact that so many Americans are following Henry David Thoreau's path. Very good. Well, uh, will be interesting to track and see whether your uh, predictions come to fruition. It seems to me that that uh, uh, there's at, v- at least a very strong claim that they that they will that this will put you know pressure, additional pressure, on uh, on the religion clauses as if they as if they uh, um, didn't, you know, as if they needed any more uh, pressures, co- social and cultural pressures of various sorts. This is going to be another, yet another source of a complication to watch in the future. So thank you very much for, for, uh, for uh, your, your uh, thoughts about your work and for agreeing to being interviewed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Um, okay, everybody. Until then, this has been, uh, until our next time. This has been uh, Mark Mavsessian and Mark DiGiralami with another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, also at Apple iTunes, on Spotify, on Android, and lots of other streaming platforms. See you next time.